Hello everyone, welcome back to the second episode of MDoc Podcast. Um, as we discussed last time, we're going to talk about specific processes, referrals, and some more tips and tricks from Adam and Priya. Uh, before we start, uh, just need to let you know that this episode is probably more specific to the doctors who are joining us in August. Uh, for everybody else who are listening to us, thank you very much. And please come back for the next episode, which will be more general topics on emergency medicine. Uh, this one is going to be more specific to our department. So going back to Adam and Priya, hope you had a good break, guys. Yeah, I've had a great break. I finished my last shift on the 31st of uh, July and I moved straight to Oxford. I have a next couple of days to settle myself and then I'm going to start my next job. Nice. You feeling refreshed? Recharged? Yeah, yeah. I yes. feel kind of, it's kind of bittersweet leaving the ED as well. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, it's uh, that time of the year when uh, it's kind of a mixed feeling for us. Uh, we say goodbye to our previous batch and then welcome our new batch. Um, yeah, it's a transition period and it happens every year. I'm sure you'll settle down in your new job and look forward to it. Um, and please feel free to come back to us. We'll always be welcome. Thank you. So, Thank you. Good. Um, so as we were discussing last time about the general tips and tricks of emergency department, one thing that I forgot to touch upon is um, actually the elephant in the room, the rotor. Um, and uh, you know how harsh it is or how tough it is uh, so obviously you guys have uh, completed about eight months to a year of this rotor do you have any tips for the juniors who are going to do this for at least four to six months as to how to survive the rotor I mean yeah it, it is what it is um, it's a tough rotor but I mean you just got to see it as this rotation is gonna be one of the best learning experiences probably of your career so just throw yourself in, see patients, and just embrace it, really. And when you return to a, quote, normal job on the other side of your A&E rotation, you will notice the difference in your competence and your confidence. Honestly, it, it just develops you in so many ways as a clinician. I feel give it your best push yourself as far out as possible while you're still young. If you can get through this ED rota, the rest of your medical career is going to be a breeze, no matter where you are, and be the best you can be. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, to be honest, uh, with a new junior doctor's contract, the rota is going to even get better. And we, as the managers of the department, uh, wholeheartedly welcome the new ro uh, rota, new contract. So hopefully your peers in down the line, uh, in a couple of years coming, they will be in a much better position. And then hopefully more people will choose emergency medicine because I guess, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you all loved your emergency department placement, but obviously feel scared to continue this as uh, your lifetime career because of the rota. Is that right? Uh, I definitely loved it. I, you know, it's... Really? Yeah. Yeah. I haven't completely ruled out ED, let's just say. Yeah, um, for me, it's just a matter of uh, uh, family commitments. Otherwise, I would have loved to continue. Guys, You guys will still be seeing a lot of me, hopefully, if I can, you know, circle around and come back and do a couple shifts here and there. I might meet some of the new doctors. Excited. If any of you are thinking about a career in ED, just bear in mind that, you know, you'll be an SHO for two, three, four years and a reg for four years, and then you'll be a consultant for 30 years or so. So... The rotor is tough, but, you know, look in the bigger picture. Not for and... majority. Yeah, exactly. 
That's a great point, Adam. Actually, what I say to all the junior doctors who join uh, ED on the first day, that if you do love ED or emergency medicine and if you want to pursue this as a career, just think there's only another six months that you'll be in a SHO rotor in your whole career. After that, you'll be uh, in the reg rotor, which is much better, and then consultant rotor is even better. So as um, Adam said, always think of the final outcome, the final picture. Great. So moving on from uh, the unpleasant topic of rotor to um, some other stuff that we wanted to discuss. So the first thing um, I wanted to talk about is the induction. So as part of the induction, this year is going to be all virtual. It's going to be through MS Teams. Um, and in the induction, there are several different elements that you'll be talked through the different aspects of emergency medicine, uh, the different services that uh, help us uh, provide the service better. Um, there are certain um, IT elements which you need to be up to date with and hopefully have access to all of them before you start your first uh, shift. Um, they include the ICE, which is what we use to uh, request blood tests and x-rays and also get the results. Um, on that note regarding ICE, can I please mention that every time you see a x-ray report or CT report or an MRI report on uh, ICE, just file them. We'll show you how to do it, but that is a very, very important uh, element. Um, apart from ICE, you will have access to PAX, which is our X-ray viewing software or CT viewing software. Apart from that, Evolve, which is where you get to see all the letters, um, previous, uh, whether inpatient or outpatient letters. And um, anything else, guys? The Medway access? Actually, yeah, actually, it's something that is very important, and that is the care-centric access as well. Yeah, absolutely. Care-centric is fantastic. So this uh, is a software which actually incorporates both primary and secondary care uh, aspects of the patient. So you can, in one particular web page, pretty much see what's happening in the community, what medications they're on, what all problems they have, if there are advanced care plannings on there, and mm. uh, what clinics they have been to, and even their recent blood pressure and pulse measurements in the GP surgery. So it's a fantastic um, service that you can access to. Yeah, sometimes the elderly don't know what they're allergic to, and you can find that on CareCentric as well. So it's very, very useful. Yeah, it's an invaluable resource in my opinion, and uh, something that we have got access to, which is fantastic. Now, moving on from eyes to investigations, um, what do you guys think of the process of investigations being requested in the department? Is there something that we should be uh, careful about, something that you have been caught out with? So often when the department's quiet, you will see a patient, you know, only a few minutes through the door and you will choose all the investigations that they get. More commonly, when it's about average busyness, a patient, for example, who walks into the waiting room will see the triage nurse who will request the investigations that they feel are appropriate, um, which will usually be bloods and an ECG, and then they might get some x-rays or something requested from one of the clinicians. And, and you will pick up the patient at maybe an hour or an hour and a half in um, when some of these bloods will probably be back, maybe all of them. Um, and you'll generally have an ECG and a few bedside things like maybe a urine dip or something. Um, and you sort of work with them. And obviously you can request more as you feel you need them um, and add on blood tests and things. Um, but it's a slightly new style of dealing with investigations that I think will be new to most people. 
Yeah, well, and one more very important element of it is some of the blood test results, they come back a bit later than the more routine ones. So for example, your D-dimer and troponin might come back a bit later. And uh, there is a way in which you can see what are the blood tests that has been requested for each particular patient. So before you discharge a patient, just have a look through and see if a D-dimer or troponin were reco uh, requested at the first place. And if they're not back, just wait for those results to come back before you send the patient home. That's uh, is is quite an important um, uh, thing yeah. to consider. Yeah, the last thing you need is a surprise troponin. On your previous kind of medical ward jobs, I'm sure you'll be used to having often daily bloods for some patients. Um, and the reality is in ED, a lot of the times that's not necessary. Um, a lot of investigations, if you really ask yourself, are very unlikely to change your management. So if you're thinking about requesting something else, just run it by a senior first when you're new. Um, because often you'll find a lot of these kind of minor injuries or kind of young, well patients won't need the level of investigation that you might think they do. Yeah, very well said. Um, moving on from uh, that element of the investigations to uh, one more aspect, which actually um, causes a lot of trouble, I think, for the junior doctors on the shop floor is uh, a referral to speciality. Uh, quite a lot of you, uh, when you're trying to refer to speciality, feel that you get a viva over the phone or face to face. Um, so both of you must have had those experiences in the last year or so. Um, why don't you tell us how you managed to cope around it or did you have any kind of tricks to share with us okay. as to how to do a best referral? Yes, Monajit. It, it was initially quite daunting to refer patients as a junior doctor to a specialist doctor and usually they would fire you with a lot of questions but someone said something to me that stuck with me and it's a tip and trick that I use every time I refer a patient and that is I ask myself is the patient likely to stay in or is the patient likely to go home is the patient going to require review by a specialist doctor and require further intervention if the answer to that is yes then I ask myself which speciality the patient would most need and it's worth bearing in mind, sometimes that's more than one speciality. Sometimes it needs to be a combined assessment uh, by, say, the medical team and the orthopedic team. After I've answered that question, I need to ask myself one last question before I pick up the phone. And that is why the patient should stay. I find it useful to uh, categorize this into three broad reasons. First, does the patient need further evaluation? And I make this reasoning for further evaluation stronger by using the help of guidelines and uh, scoring systems like Blatchford scoring for hematemesis or the Alvarado scoring for appendicitis. The second main reason why a patient could stay in is pain management. Bear in mind that we have to start by giving the patient adequate pain management before we uh, refer on the patient, but that's a, a second most common reason why a patient stays in. And the third reason, which might be a bit different to doctors coming from outside, is social issues. Is this an elderly person that cannot cope at home? Is this an elderly person whereby it will not be safe for them to be alone at home? And if the answer to any one of these questions is yes, and you, you have to formulate that as a plan to refer, and then you refer the patient. When you do this in a systematic man manner, you sound a lot more intelligent, you sound a lot more convincing, and it's harder for them to deny you the referral. It's a really good point, Priya. I think that's going to be one of the things that the re receiving specialty is going to be 
care about the most is why can't this patient go home? Um, and sometimes that's obvious and sometimes it's a bit more nuanced and as to why, you know, this wouldn't be a safe discharge. And definitely when you first make a referral, it's absolutely terrifying, but it's an acquired skill and you get so much better at it and becomes a breeze. I feel it helps to introduce yourself as well. So it starts off with building rapport from the very second you pick up the phone by introducing yourself, sounding friendly, but firm and sounding intelligent in your reasoning why. If you're going to back foot and backpedal as you speak, then the, the likelihood of the, the referral being successful goes down, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree with both of you. I think um, the uh, kind of tips that I say to most of the juniors is when you refer a patient, always think about what you're going to do if you were the receiving doctor. It's not only when you refer the patients, also when you discharge the patient to the GPs. When you receive that letter, what you're expecting to do? If you know the answer and if you think that is beyond the capabilities of the constraints of emergency department, then that is the right thing to do. The other thing that's important with referrals is to keep it concise, especially if you're nervous. It's really easy to just ramble on with a lot of less relevant information. Um, SBAR is just a really useful tool and particularly just open with you know, what it is you want out of this conversation. I'll just pick up the phone and say, hi, my name's Adam. I'm one of the EDS at shows. I'd like to refer a patient who I think has appendicitis. Is now a good time to chat? Straight away, just say what you want. And equally, if, if you're only ringing for advice, say that again straight away because it's important for the person on the other end of the phone to know what it is you want out of this conversation. And it helps them kind of listen to the information that you're giving in a more focused, structured way. And everybody is time pressured in NHS. And so there will be occasions where you might uh, end up having some sort of a confrontation with speciality doctors. Um, and in those situations, don't forget that you are not alone and you have got seniors uh, who are there to support you. So please come and talk to your seniors, whether it's a registrar or consultants during the consultant hours. And we'll be more than happy to take the referral from your behalf and then speak to the relevant speciality or the relevant consultants. Okay, so now moving on to kind of um, actual referral process, uh, which I'm sure is very confusing and you guys are not going to remember it. So um, this is kind of a space reputation and that's why we are going to talk about it today. And I'm sure over the next uh, few days time when you're going to do your induction, you'll be told about this and on show floor, you'll learn about it as well. But as a uh, first process, we're going to talk about it today. Um, so I'm going to test the knowledge of uh, both Adam and Priya <laughs> to see how far they remember how to refer to each uh, speciality or each clinics and everything else. So over to you both. Yep, go ahead. Firstly, um, I'll just say don't worry too much about this because I am living proof that you don't need to fully remember all of these to become an excellent ED clinician. Well said, Adam. And I would say most of the referrals would fall in the scope of um, emailing the varied uh, department and all their email addresses are available with the receptionist. So at least, you know, you know that if when in doubt, go to the receptionist and ask, can I refer this to this particular uh, speciality and they would look up a list that they have and they'll let you know if you could directly email them or if you could write a, a written referral and then pass it on to them to pass it on to the various specialities. 
Absolutely. Just to be clear, these are all outpatient or kind of ambulatory care referrals. If it's an inpatient referral, it's always a discussion with, with someone. But for example, eye casualty, um, for an uh, urgent eye casualty case, you usually ring the ophthalmology registrar on call and just discuss the case with them. And they'll nine times out of 10 say, yep, that's fine. Just drop an email to the eye casualty secretaries. Uh, and there's like a big list of emails, which is widely circulated around the department. It's pinned up on a lot of the computers. Uh, virtual fracture clinic is another one that we do very commonly um, for fractures that need outpatient review but don't need to come in. Um, that's a new one that I'm still getting used to, actually. So maybe I'll let Priya talk about that one. I've used it a couple of times. It's very easy. You just, uh, but I'm sure you learn it on the job, but it's a very yes, no uh, kind of uh performer that comes up and then at the end of it you press safe and it's done it's much easier than it was before actually similarly plastic surgery referral so anything involving the wrist and below excluding the scaphoid bone burns and cuts that needs to be seen by a plastic surgeon again it's an online referral through the evolve so you would find that evolve is very useful not only for looking at every discharge summary ever written about the patient but also to refer a lot of the ambulatory care, as Adam mentioned earlier. So on Evolve, you can refer the plus to the plastic surgeons, you can refer to ambulatory care, you can refer to MUDAS, which is uh, medicinally people. So for example, if someone comes in with falls and you've taken a history and they have fallen more than three times in the past year, that would classify as frequent falls. So you would need to also do a MUDAS referral to make sure that this is seen by a geriatric doctor that would evaluate the patient holistically, which is not always possible in the remit of an ED. MUDAS is actually one of my favourite kind of outpatient admission avoidance services. It's fantastic for lots of complicated elderly people who've got a lot of things going on. And, you know, in ED, when old people come in, and they have, you know, some some LFTs that are slightly off. You don't really have the time to kind of dig too deep into what's going on there. And it's not a particularly urgent, acute problem. But nonetheless, it's not something that you can really just kind of palm off to the GP. MUDAS is the perfect referral service for these kinds of patients. And you know what, Adam? Do you remember the silver phone? Yeah. When I yeah, was yeah. first told of that, I thought it was an actual silver phone. <laughs> But actually, it refers to the fact that uh, there is a geriatric consultant on the other end, hence the word silver, and there's somebody that you can talk to and, and formulate a plan and even pass on the patient details to before uh, as, as and before you make the MUDAS referral. Yeah. We slightly skipped over ACU, which is Ambulatory Emergency Care Unit, which is probably the oh, most cool. common kind of urgent outpatient service you'll refer to. And that's really good for kind of next day scans or if you want to get some blood tests repeated in, you know, two, three days time, something that is kind of a bit I too particularly, to... You know, Adam, I particularly like ACU for my CTKUBs. Say oh, someone is yeah. coming with loin, loin pain and we need to do a CTKUB for uh, as, as the gold standard to investigate a stone in the kidneys. I love to, instead of making them wait there, I prefer to manage their pain and ask them to come in the next day for a CT, KUB and a, and a review afterwards. That way you can see a patient one day after you have sort of managed their pain and see how they are doing. Absolutely. Renal colic is quite a common uh, presentation to the emergency department. Uh, 
Um, DVT is another urgent outpatient thing that we see quite a lot or you know, query DVT. Um, uh, AC is the perfect thing to get a next day or same, sometimes same day ultrasound. So the slightly separate to AC uh, is the early pregnancy unit. Um, PV bleeding in early pregnancy is a really, really common ED presentation. Um, and most of these women need an outpatient urgent scan, um, which is usually done in EPAU, early pregnancy assessment unit. Um, and for that, you just ring the on-call gynae registrar um, and just kind of discuss the patient with them. And nine times out of 10, they will say, yep, yeah, that's fine. Just give a call to uh, SAU and that's how you book the EPAU scans. Just a quick mention about ACU. Um, you'd need to make a formal referral to ACU through Evolve. Again, we'll show you how to do that. And as regards to DVT pathway, just remember there's no DVT scanning that happens over the weekend. So if you see a patient on a Friday, don't um, make an appointment or ask them to come back for a CU appointment on a Saturday. Uh, just give them low molecular heparin for the two days and then they will be followed up on Monday for a scan. Um, as regards to EPAU, again, uh, most of the time you actually don't need to speak to the gynae registrar. Um, if you think it's a very small amount of bleeding or the bleeding settling down, there is no pain or hematonically uh, quite stable, then you can just call SAU and get an appointment for EPAU the next available date. Um, it's, uh, it happens both in Stoke Mandeville as well as Wickham. Uh, so depending on where the patient uh, lives, you can get an appointment to either of those sites. So what about the TIA or the stroke pathway then? So it's worth bearing in mind that we are an aging population here in the UK. So one of the most common presentations you would get is someone who's come in with transient weakness or numbness or tingling in their face or their limbs. If this is then classified as a TIA or a transient ischemic attack, uh, it, we refer this type of patients after doing a CT head to rule out bleeds we would give them 300 milligrams of aspirin. And then it's as simple as filling up a form and handing it over to the receptionist to refer that patient on to be seen by a stroke uh, consultant or a stroke doctor over at High Wycombe. Yeah, and the, the TIA referral form is useful and it has uh, lots of kind of risk stratification tools uh, and you know reminders to watch out for things like crescendo, crescendo TIAs. Um, yeah. which would need inpatient admission. Um, that's a really common one. Uh, first fit, first seizure is a, a really common ED presentation. Um, and these patients get referred to first fit clinic usually, um, which is another form that is actually fairly quick to fill out and just gets handed in to our uh, A&E receptionists. Something not quite as straightforward, uh, unfortunately, is the safeguarding form. How many would we have done? Too many, too many. Yeah, you're right. Um, the safeguarding forms are a lot more complicated. I think partially due to the nature of the beast. Um, obviously, if you're ever kind of raising a safeguarding concern in ED, it's going to be a very multifaceted, nuanced situation usually, and the forms are quite extensive, but very, very important to do. Um, so the EMARF form is probably one of the ones you'll be doing most, uh, most commonly, the safeguarding form. Um, that's the Safeguarding Children's Form. It stands for Electronic Multi-Agent Referral Form. Um, common reasons you'd fill something like this out is 
patients who have children at home uh, presenting to ED with self-harm suicide presentations. Um, more rarely minors coming in with self-harm suicide presentations. Um, or there's various other things which mandate a MAR form to be completed, such as, you know, various things like young children coming in with injuries, things like that. I um, completely agree. In fact, I think that uh, it's very important to take EMAR forms as a way we as clinicians are looking out for the vulnerable sections of society, which is mostly elderly uh, people and young children. Mm. Yeah, definitely. There's a separate um, adult safeguarding form, um, which I'm sure you become familiar with when you start. The other finicky one is the mental health performer. Have you feel many of those, Adam? I feel that a great many of them. Yep. It's. Um, Did it you like bit... filling them? <laughs> Do I like filling them? <laughs> I wouldn't say I like filling them, but they're definitely a useful thing. They're kind of. Um, so what it is, it's uh, any patient coming with a mental health presentation. Um, or a suicide self-harm presentation gets referred after they've been medically cleared to our mental health services, which is uh, PEARLS uh, for adults. So I think it might be called PLS now. Uh, and before you refer to PEARLS or PLS, you fill out a performer, um, which is essentially a, a mental state exam, a capacity assessment, and a couple of other bits, like a, a physical description of the patient. Um, and that's quite good at kind of focusing your thoughts about, you know, you know, how, how high risk is this patient? Yeah. Exactly. And how to approach them, that sort of thing. Yeah, and because uh, especially since many junior doctors would not have had any experience with uh, patients of the psychiatric nature. So this form really help uh, with guiding you on your clinical approach as well. For sure. Um, React team then. They are another element of the ED that help uh, work go smoothly or help facilitate patient care. So they are essentially a group of uh, physiotherapists and occupational therapists that uh, help facilitate the movement of patients from ED to the community. Uh, when have you called React, Adam? Oh, loads of reasons for calling React. Um, as Priya says, they're essentially they're, they're physios and OTs. Um, primarily, I would call React when I've got a concern about a patient's mobility or how safe they're going to be at home um, and whether they've got the right support for them at home. Um, React are incredible at getting very frail people home and keeping them home. They can get equipment in, all sorts of equipment at extremely short notice. They can plug these patients into the right community services that will help support them. Um, yeah, really invaluable resource. And I think you'll get more of a talk about React in your induction. Yeah, and this one tiny last bit to remember is that when you send a patient to react, make sure that you have done your bit, make sure that the patient is not in pain and the patient is optimised for them to do then go on and do their jobs. That's true. That's a really good point. That's a great point, Priya. We should remember that uh, react are not magicians. You know, if a patient cannot come out of the bed um, because they are in pain or because they are generally very weak, there's no point in sending them for mobility assessment. So they need inpatient admission and proper optimization followed by inpatient OTPT assessment. So these patients, if we refer to react, we delay their disposition. And for these reasons, we need you to come and discuss with us before you refer to react so that we can discuss uh, various options and then come up with the joint decisions with yourselves. Uh, it's a very, very important point to remember. Moving on. And what about EOU? How often have you used EOU, Adam? 
Oh, I use EOU absolutely every day. Um, it's a really useful. <laughs> I do. I do. I every it. day. <laughs> I do every day. Every workday. It's a really useful uh, area of the department. EOU is Emergency Observation Unit. Um, this used to be a sort of like a ten-bedded mini ward run by ED, um, but following COVID, this has now been reduced to just a seating area. Um, so EOU is a is a it's a sort of a place where you can kind of put patients. I mean, physically a holding put patients. Room. Who, yeah. Sorry? A holding room of sorts. Exactly, a holding room. But it's, it's nice for the patients. It's more comfortable yeah. than, you know, majors or the waiting room. It's, it's cool. It's quiet. There's tea and coffee there. Um, it's a nice place for them to wait for scans and things. Um, like a, I've most frequently send patients there to, while they're waiting for transport yeah that's really so sometimes you know 11 o'clock at night the patient is 94 but fit and well ready to go home so we're just waiting for an ambulance crew to come and pick them up that's the perfect place for them to have a cup of tea before they go absolutely um other sorts of things that you're likely to put patients in eou for is maybe like a repeat troponin for a low risk chest pain or mris sometimes which can take a couple of hours to get organized um the important thing to, to know about EOU is it's for patients who are almost certainly going to be going home. Um, the system doesn't work if you, if patients who are likely to be admitted go there. Um, mm. Yeah, so you cannot put speciality patients there. Only no. ED, pure ED patients headed home go into EOU. And before you put a patient in EOU, very important to discuss with the nurse in charge and the consultant in charge so that they know how many spaces are there and uh, to fill out a form as well. Yeah, the EOU form's useful actually because it reminds you that you need to discuss this with the nurse in charge, you need to discuss this with the consultant and you also need a, a clear plan of what they're waiting for that you can't just kind of put yeah. in patients in EOU waiting for you to come up with a plan. There has to be something, you know, like waiting for a repeat troponin, going yep. home is okay, clear plan. And and the form is conveniently located at the nursing station, at the nurse and charge just table, basically. Yeah. So let's move on to a bit of uh, documentation and coding. When, so now you have seen the patient, you have done your uh, in relevant referrals or relevant treatments for the patient. Now we need to write it down. How do you go about go doing that, Adam? Uh, I mean, it depends on the presentation. Um, Obviously, documentation is really, really important, and you've got to be very thorough with your documentation. But at the same time, not every patient needs a kind of full medical clerking. Um, you definitely need to really thoroughly document the history and the examination findings and your impression and your plan um, are the main things. Adam, I remember you saying something to me which really stuck with me and helped me during my time in the ED. That was at the beginning of your documentation, you would... Uh, write if you wanted the GP to follow up in any way, you would write it in one line at the top of your discharge summary, essentially. That's a really good point. Our A&E notes just get copied and pasted as the discharge summary and get sent to the GP. <clears throat> so if there's any kind of specific thing you need the GP to do, it's important to make that clear on the documentation. So spare a thought for these GPs who are having to sift through your endless endless notes and what their blood test results and things showed. It's really important to have a clear, if you need the GP to do something, you know, like repeat bloods in a week or something, I just put that in capitals right at the top of my documentation and copy and paste it and put it right at the bottom. 
And then similarly, if if it's like a minor injury that doesn't need any GP follow-up, I'll just put GP actions nil at the top and copy and paste that to the bottom. To that's save really me. useful too. That's really nice of you, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. I was sparing yeah. a thought for my uh, GP colleagues like yourself. <laughs> uh, and the other thing, uh, the other thing I wanted to add to documentation as well was to give a little note on social history, especially when it comes to uh, children. So very important to to document that you've given a thought to whether there are any social concerns and to document that they were none or if they were what they, what they were essentially. Uh, and also it also helps document if the patient is a smoker or a drinker. I think those are things that sometimes get forgotten, but they paint a, a more complete picture of the patient you're dealing with. Yeah. So, and the last bit, I always end my documentation with uh, saying that I have essentially safety net at the patient. So that's a word that has been thrown around a lot. What do you think, what do you mean when you say safety netting? That's a really good point and something that's definitely important to talk about for new uh, ED doctors. Um, something you'll be very, well, it's kind of a new concept, I think probably for most, most people, is safety netting patients. And it kind of comes hand in hand with discharging patients that you safety net them and say, you know, at this point in time, you are well enough to go home with this plan, but obviously things can always change. And it's really important if they do change, you don't just sit on it and let yourself get sicker. You know, you need to give them clear instructions for what to do if, if things go wrong and which services they need to call. Um, there's lots of really good specific uh, safety netting advice uh, leaflets that we have in the department like a head injury is a good example the vast majority of head injuries that come into ED aren't going to need any sort of imaging they're just going to need a thorough history and examination sometimes a short period of observation in the department and then most of them go home um, with no form of imaging it's really important to say to them you know if you start vomiting if you're getting drowsy whatever you need to come back in or or signpost them to the appropriate services in addition to that, it's very, very reassuring to the patient if you say, these are the danger signs to look out for. This is the printed information that I can give you that you can refer back to when you get home. And we as an ED are always open, always welcome you back to uh, be reassessed should you feel any different or should you feel that you're not safe at home. I think when you say that to a patient, they're happier going home because they know that they can come back at any time. So that is an important bit of safety netting that I like to add when uh, talking to my patients going home. Um, and I think this is especially important for in the paediatric unit uh, when a lot of first time anxious moms come in and they feel that their kids are struggling to breathe. Uh, there's a bronchiolitis um, uh, information leaflet that you can give to them that is very specific on the signs that you look out for. And sometimes when the specific information leaflet is not available in the department, I go onto websites like nice.org or patient.info and I print out information regarding that specific mm -hmm. condition to give to them. So it's something physical that they can take in their hand, something that you can explain to them. And uh, it's on the whole very reassuring. Yeah, that's a really good point. These leaflets usually have uh, websites or phone numbers to get more information on them and things as well, which is useful mm. for patients and parents. Um, yeah. And definitely document that you've that you've saved the safety nesting advice that you've given and document that you've given them a leaflet because it shows that yeah. you've kind of considered this and really put thought and effort into yeah. properly safety netting your patient.
it makes you a safe doctor. It makes you a good doctor because the patient leaves the department happy and reassured. And, they, and, and also it makes you a safe doctor because you know that they are aware when they should come in. Exactly. Should things deteriorate. That brings us very nicely to the last bit, Adam, that I think we should cover about how medicine in the ED has to be very patient-centred. So with regards to patient coming to the waiting room, while they're having their bloods taken, it's important to remember that that process takes time. And in the time that it is taking, the patient is still experiencing their symptoms more often than not pain. So it's very important to bear that in mind and completely give them a symptomatic treatment as early as possible. You're completely right, Priya. It's so, so important. And something that I definitely overlooked a lot when I was first starting out is to prescribe good analgesia and antiemetics where needed for your patients early. Um, definitely when I started in my head, I was frantically thinking, or oh, what on earth could be the cause of this abdomen pain? What on earth am I going to do? And I slightly got kicked to the curb a bit. This patient's in pain and we can give them painkillers and get them feeling a lot better. So once you've made the patient feel better, then I like to use what is called the ICE format to gauge the patient's uh, thoughts and uh, expectations. Are you familiar with that, Adam? Yeah, ICE is something we got taught at, at university. Um, and I kind of never really paid it much thought or I just sort of thought it was one of the less important things that was just a t tick box for exams. Um, but actually, it's really genuinely useful um, to kind of figure out what people want, what people are expecting. Do they just want themselves to be not in pain anymore? Do they want definitive answers? Do they want reassurance? Um, and you'll get a lot better the more patients you see it kind of subtly gauging, um, gauging this in your patients and yeah. tailoring what you do around that. And also, yeah. it, it's it's fine to directly ask them, you know, what, yeah. is there anything that you particularly want? Is there anything you particularly worried about? Um, and it really gets the patient on your side and gives them a much better kind of feeling about their ED experience and they, they leave yeah. satisfied and yeah, it's nice. Great. Thank you very much. Um, so that kind of leads on to the last bit that we wanted to talk about to the junior doctors as to, um, what kind of educational opportunities did you guys feel we had to offer in the department? And did you really think that it benefited you? Absolutely. I mean, the main thing that you get constantly is just exposure to patients in general, to patients that you're not used to seeing before, you know, like peds, obstetrics patients, things like that. Um, there's a huge amount of procedures that you get involved in, um, reducing fractures and dislocations, um, doing nerve blocks. Um, there's so much. Um, the ultrasound, as you know, Monager, is my new favourite toy in the emergency department. <laughs> <laughs> so Yeah, yeah absolutely. I... And you're clearly getting better at it, Adam. Uh, I hope you'll continue to do that. I hope yeah. so. And in addition to that, I found the, uh, that this particular department have put a lot of emphasis on 345 teaching sessions. Sometimes they run for 15 minutes, sometimes they run for 30 minutes, but either way, it is a very useful interlude in a busy shift to sit down, share interesting cases, or have a few teaching points. I myself have taken on uh, one or two of those sessions as a SHO handover teaching session, whereby I educated my peers about 
uh, reading an ABG, I think, was one of them. And the other one was something to do with x-rays. I can't quite remember. But that all has a dual uh, benefit of making you a more confident presenter and making you making sure that you're very well versed with that particular topic, whatever it may be. And the teaching is really nice, actually. It's even when the department's busy, it's just a five, 10 minutes mm. when all the SHOs on all the different shifts together just kind of get out from it all and just have some teaching on something. And it happens every day. Um, yep. And then we get a like a longer hour teaching session every Wednesday, which is always good. So I think we're probably coming towards the end of this episode. We've talked a lot about things you must do and things you must remember. Um, but don't worry, it, I, it probably seems very overwhelming. And yeah, there is a lot to learn, but you learn so much on the job. And all of this will be completely second nature to you before you know it. And just the main and most important bit of advice is enjoy your time in ED because you're probably not going to get it again. It is going to be the best learning experience of your career. And it's a lot of fun if you just throw yourself in there, put yourself out of your comfort zone, take learning opportunities and just embrace it and yeah oh that makes me so sad when you say that it's coming to an end I, I vividly remember that when me sitting in Singapore and having a Skype interview with the then clinical lead uh, Monajit and the current clinical lead Abhishek and I've come a full circle I've just said bye to them yesterday and it was ups and downs, good, bad, ugly. I loved it all. I do not regret a single moment. Neither will you. You would go in with a lot of hesitation and a lot of fear, but you will come out so strong. You shine like a diamond. <laughs> and and I would say, as what Adam said, embrace it wholeheartedly. Go at it at full speed. Um, push yourself out of your comfort zone because only when you do, do you really know what you're made of and know what you're capable of. So I think I would see some of you around the department if I come back for locums. But even if I don't, my heartiest uh, wishes to all of you to make this department proud and, and, and do really well for yourselves as well. I'm sure I'll be back for locums. I'm sure I'll meet some of you. Um, bear in mind, there will be tough days. There'll be really tough days. Um, but diamonds are formed under pressure. And when you get to the end of your rotation like I am, you won't remember the tough days. You'll remember how much you've developed as a doctor, as a person, and you remember the good times. Yeah, you remember the good times. I've said it before, I'll say it once again. There's a great team at Stoke Mandeville Hospital that welcomed me with open arms when I first came to the UK. I have a bond that has formed with them that will last forever, and you would experience the same. They're such a family-oriented uh, team, and they will give you your best experience ever. So I say heartfelt thank you to everyone at Stoke Mandeville as I move on to other things. Yeah, I completely echo what Priya said. Um, enjoy your time in ED, guys. Um, thanks for listening to the podcast. Thanks for having us, Monojit. I'm really touched by both your comments. Really, I'm sure my emotions will be echoed by my fellow consultant colleagues as well as registrars, nursing team and the admin team. It's been an absolute pleasure working with all of you. You guys have put in so much hard work during these difficult times. And my special thanks to both of you uh, for helping me out and making this possible. You've given your off time beyond your duty hours to come and do this. Hope it's been an interesting experience for both of you. I wish you all the luck and best wishes for your future job. 
so until next time here's us signing off and please stay healthy keep well and see you soon bye bye